If you want to borrow a Bible and raise your hand, and the ushers will bring you a Bible. And you can just follow along with us this morning, and when you're done with it, you can put it in your pew, and we'll pick it up later. In about two weeks from today, we are going to have baptism in the lake. It'll be the 31st of July. And so if you've never been baptized, then come see me, and we'll get you baptized. And this is a, this is a good time for you to study what you believe theologically about baptism, because I know some of you were baptized as an infant, and you were not, you've not been baptized as a believer, and I would encourage you to examine the scriptures, and uh, we do not practice infant baptism. We think the Bible talks more about unicorns than it does about infant baptism, and so we would encourage you to examine the scriptures and see what the Bible actually says, and we would encourage you to be baptized. So, two weeks from today, in the lake, we're doing baptisms. Come see me, we'll talk about it. I wanted to get you to think about something before we dive into the scriptures this morning, uh, this concept of trending. Uh, are you familiar with the idea of trending? It's uh, simply the idea of movement or a progression in a certain direction. You can think about the, the stock market is trending upward or the stock market is trending downward. You can, you can think about topics online that are trending upward based upon ranked by tweets or blog posts or searches. There's even this concept uh, on Yahoo's homepage of trending now, which shows which people are looking at the most and what they're searching for the most. And so this past week, I've just been jotting down some of the trending now topics. I'm just curious, maybe some of you, you know, typed in some of these searches on your own. And I'm not going to do a show of hands, because I know some of you, what you're searching for this week. But here's some trending now topics. Heat wave. Power outage. Anybody look up some power outage stuff this week? Yep. Depression. The Bachelorette. Yeah. Justin Bieber. You're like, yeah, I know you guys are looking at Justin Bieber. Uh, Rodney King and Rupert Murdoch. That's just a lot of the trending now topics this week, and I was just thinking of this, this concept of trending now in terms of our spiritual condition. Like, if I was going to ask you in your personal spiritual life, where are you trending now? Like, what are those things in your life that are consuming your thoughts, consuming your time, maybe something you're searching for emotionally or physically or spiritually? What are some of the, the reoccurring themes in your life? If I gave you like this top five concept of what is trending now, would you be able to, to put those things down and, and evaluate them and where the Lord may, may want you to go? But we're going to put that down for now, and we'll just ask you to think about that, and later we're going to bring it up again. So my, my question is, when you start to look at the things that are trending in your life, I would like to know how you would explain those trends in your life. Like, for example, if, if, you, if you've been watching the news a lot recently, you, kn you know that they're trying to explain the trends in the stock market based upon the, the current talks or fights in Washington over the budget cuts, spending, or the lack thereof, and how that is going to affect the trending upward or downward of the stock market. And so there's an explanation. But I wonder what, what kind of explanation we would give for our own lives, whether we're trending upward or downward spiritually. And I want you to think beyond your own life to look at the broad world on a whole, that when the gospel goes out, 
why do some people respond one way and some respond another way and some are kind of conflicted? Like when the gospel goes out, why do we have a significant amount of people reject Jesus, some actually accept Jesus, and, and some are conflicted? Like how can you explain that trend? How can you explain what is going on behind the scenes in the hearts of people once the gospel goes out and there's different responses? And this is something that Jesus thought was very important. He thought it was so important that he wants to explain to us what is going on spiritually when someone responds to the gospel and when someone does not respond to the gospel. What is actually going on? How can we explain that phenomenon? And so he, he, he takes some time in, in the book of Matthew in chapter 13 to explain this. So if you wouldn't mind turning there, and we're going to be in Matthew 13 this morning. We've been going through the book of Matthew And this morning, we're going to see a behind-the-scenes indicator of what's going on, the spiritual trends of a person's heart. Now, we're not going to read it today because it's a very long passage, but I I really want you to understand the context because I know that some of you are visiting for the first time today. I know a lot of you have been traveling over the summer. You're in and out. And so we come to Matthew 13. You're like, wow, parable of sorrow. I wonder what that's about. What have you been talking about in Matthew? Let me just set a little context for you. We've been looking at different responses to Jesus. Chapter 11 showed the response, the majority response of the crowd. It was one of indifference. They thought that Jesus was a little entertaining sideshow rather than God's main event for the world. So the crowd was indifferent. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they weren't indifferent. They were flat out opposed to Jesus. They were wanting to kill him. And then we have the disciples. Disciples who are the weary, who are the broken, who come to Jesus for rest, who come to Jesus for forgiveness. We have three different responses. And and how do you explain those responses? How do you see what's going on behind the scenes? And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at while he explains the different responses to the gospel in Matthew 13. And I I really think it's going to be a great story to study today. I think it's going to have an impact upon your life, impact upon my life. So before we jump into the specifics, let's go to a time in prayer. Lord, we just ask that significant things would happen in our heart today as we're talking about what's going on inside. We're talking about what what is the openness or the hardness of our hearts, what is the openness and the hardness of the hearts to those around the world. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be open in a new way this morning to submitting to you in a surrendered way where we would be fruitful no matter what we're going through. And for those who have their minds elsewhere right now because they're having some difficulties and they're suffering, I ask you to speak great truth this morning through your word. For those of us who are distracted, for those of us who are off mission, get our eyes back on you. And may we not just mouth words of open the eyes of my heart, but actually pray them to you and ask you to move in a significant way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump in. Verse 1, let's go. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. So... Let's stop. A parable. 
I don't know what you learned in Sunday school. I'm sure you learned about them all the time. You thought they were cool stories. You probably colored pictures with parables. And and maybe you're kind of familiar with the idea. So a parable is something that is talked about uh, physically, uh, a farmer, what we're going to see this morning. And it has some spiritual correlation. So it's something going on in a familiar event of life to explain some spiritual correlation. And at this point, Jesus makes the switch and only teaches the crowds in parables. We'll get back to that in a moment. But let's look at this really cool story. Verse 3. A sower went out to sow. So here we are to visualize a farmer with this big bag of seed, and he is just throwing them out into the soil. Verse 4. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So, you know, when you're sowing out in the field, you're going to have a hard path, kind of like a a sidewalk, because someone, you have to walk on something, and it's not as hard as our concrete would, but it's a pretty compact path. And what's happening there, some of the seed is falling on that path. You're thinking, well, don't put it there. Well, you know, it's just like you when you seed your yard. Uh, wind blows it onto the concrete and nothing happens. It doesn't grow and birds swoop down and, and pluck it up. That's the hard path. Look at the second soil, verses 5 and 6. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Well, the concept here is, I was was saying, what does that mean? I was just kind of studying that because I'm not this big farmer guy, if you haven't guessed yet. I I mean, the closest I got was going to college in Russellville, Arkansas, having my dorm next to a cow pasture, but that's about as close as I get to farming. So the concept is you have soil, but there's this limestone layer underneath the soil. So when the seed comes down, it's quick growth, but once the sun comes up, it takes all that moisture away and totally scorches what has been grown. It makes it unproductive. In fact, it, it kills it once the sun comes up. Why? Because there are no deep roots. That's soil too. Now look at the third soil, verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. So here we have some, some growth. It, something actually grows, but it can't stand the competition of the thorns. And so the, the bushes, these thorn bushes went out because they steal the water, they steal the space, and the plants are unable to grow and prosper. And then verse 8, the fourth soil. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So you got some good soil, he produced this abundance. So Jesus is telling the story, you're like, where are you going with this Jesus? And he adds at the end, he who has ears, let him hear. That's his way of saying, hey, did you hear me? You better think about this. You got to do something with it. There has to be a response here. And so naturally, you would think, if we're going to write the Bible, we're going to have the story of the sower, and then we're going to have an explanation. But somehow, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew puts this middle part in. This middle part that the crowds are not part of. It's just a little interchange between Jesus and his disciples. And this little middle part, before we get the explanation of the interpretation, is very important. So pay attention. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, 
To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So the the disciples are like, excuse me, Jesus, I've got a question. Why are you so mysterious? Why you got to be making things all fuzzy? Why don't you just speak plainly? And Jesus says, well, you guys are privy to insider information. That's why I speak this way. But I'm keeping the crowds in the dark. You guys get this insight that they don't get. And that's why I'm speaking to them in parables. You see, when you became a Christian, I don't know if you explained it this way. I don't know if all of you are Christians, but when you became a Christian, you've got to admit, you started seeing things differently. In fact, if you could explain it in a certain way, maybe you would say you started seeing for the first time. Your eyes were open to spiritual realities. You were no longer in the dark. That's kind of what's going on in the parables. As Jesus is speaking, he's saying, you guys are going to see. Your eyes are going to be open more and more and more. But them, the crowds, they're going to be kept in the dark. You see, what he's basically saying is that the parables solidify the trends in one's life. The parables solidify the trends in one's life. Look what he says in verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So he's saying, okay, the parables are coming out, and they're going to show your true heart condition. They're going to show who's open, and they're going to show who's hard. And so those who are trending upward toward Jesus, those who are trending on the upward and responding to Jesus, they're going to hear the parables, and they're going to get more and more insight, and they're going to keep trending upwards, and they're going to get more and more insight into these kingdom ways, into the reign of Christ. And so those who are trending upwards, they will get more. However... Those who are trending downward, those who are rejecting Jesus, those who are against Christ, the parables will solidify them and lock them in to their hardened condition. Isn't that interesting? His teaching is meant to keep those who are trending upward, to keep going, and those who are against them, to lock them in to judgment and keep them in the dark. Keep going. Look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So this is a quote coming from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. It's talking about the commissioning of Isaiah. Can you imagine being commissioned? God is is commissioning you, and the commission is, you're going to go to a hard people, and they will not repent. How would you like that commission? And so here's Jesus showing up on the scene and it's being fulfilled even in Jesus who's also going to Israel and they're going to be hardened and they will not repent as well. So it is the same uh, play, second act, same game, second half. That's what's going on here. The people are locked in 
for judgment. And so you've got to ask, what's up with God locking people in for judgment? That doesn't sound very loving. Why would he teach in such a way that would harden people's hearts further? Why would he do that? So how can you explain the hardness of people's hearts? How do you explain people being locked in to judgment? And, and I think when we, as we're going through this section here, I think we have the concept of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I think you have both explained in the parable here. It is God's will. It is God's purpose to use the parables as an instrument to give further insight or to harden someone's heart. And at the same time, we have human responsibility because it says, Jesus says, those who have will be given more. Those who will respond to Jesus, they're going to be giving more insight. But those who have hardened their hearts to Jesus, then the parables will just harden their hearts even more, lock them in to judgment. And you're thinking, well, does this have any Old Testament correlation? Is this a new way God is dealing with people? It's, it's not new. One of the neat things to study in the Old Testament, we, we talked about it when we were going through the book of Exodus, is Pharaoh. Remember how Pharaoh hardened his heart? Remember that? But it also says that God hardened his heart. Like both were going on. So the concept is that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart by his own choice. And God hardened his heart as well. It's not like Pharaoh said, you know, God, I really don't want a hard heart. I really want to follow you. But if you're going to give me a hard heart, I guess I've got to take that. That's not what's going on. Pharaoh's like, yeah, yeah I'm, that's the direction I'm going. And so God, as he hardened Pharaoh's heart, locked him in to judgment. And you may be here this morning, and you may be thinking, um, I'm scared. Maybe I'm on this downward trend. Maybe God has locked me into judgment. Maybe it is too late for me to repent. Maybe I'm going to continue and go and go and go until I finally end up in hell. Like if you sincerely right now, want to repent of your sin, there's no way God's going to say, no, no, no. If you are open to turning from your sin and not hardening your heart to God, he will forgive you through Jesus. It's not like God says, well, no, I see your response to this, but I'm going to keep driving you into the ground. That's not what's going on. These are people who are hardened to God. So if you fear, if I'm locked in for judgment... God will receive the repentance sinner because people still come to Jesus. And that's what Jesus gets at here in verse 16. Look what he says. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear hear it. So the disciples are those who are open. They're open to follow Jesus. And the reward, they get this great revelation of Jesus. They are in this more favored category than the prophets of old. And the prophets of old long for the Messiah, and the disciples have front row seats. So God still is opening the hearts of people. People are still responding to the gospel, and the disciples are a great example. Now, let's go back to the parable explained. This is this is really amazing. Let's go back to, as he's explaining the parable, not to the crowd, but he's explaining the parable to his disciples. Look at verse 18. Hear then 
the parable of the sower. So let's, let's stop. I want to make sure you totally understand everything before we get in. Something physical explains spiritual correlation. Okay, the sower. Who is the sower? It's, it's Jesus. You're like, well, how do you know it's Jesus? Well, look at verse 37. Another parable we're going to hear, see later. Verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So Jesus is out sowing the good seed. And what is the seed? Well, the seed is basically the message of the kingdom. It is the reign of God in Christ. For us, the explanation of the good seed would be the gospel. And for the, us, we understand the complete message of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died substitutionary death on the cross, was buried for sinners, rose again. Those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ can have forgiveness. That, that is the good seed. So the sower is Jesus. The good seed is this gospel seed that's going out. And it's interesting that Jesus calls this the parable of the sower. But even though that's the title, even though what he, that's what he calls it, the, the parable is more about the soil. It's talking about four different types of soils. It's talking about the hearts of people and their different responses to Jesus. And so there's nothing wrong with the sower. That would be Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the seed. That would be the gospel. The issue is the soils. Different hearts, different people, different responses. In our story today, we have four different soils. So let's march through these four soils, and this is, this, is, this is amazing. Look at number one, soil number one, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That's simple enough. So this is likely a description of the religious leaders. It's likely a description of the Pharisees. Their hearts are hard. They don't need an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but they have a hard heart understanding. They are the hard path. The good seed has been thrown out to them. Jesus has taught the crowds. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have listened, but the seed did not penetrate the heart. The seed did not go deep down into the heart. It was left on the surface, and the birds, in this case Satan, came and snatched it away. Well, isn't that interesting that unbelief is described from different angles? First, it's described as the hard soil. Then it's described as God using the parables to harden them. And here it's described as what? Satan come and snatching it away. So there's a lot going on when you're trying to explain unbelief. There's different angles you c- can talk about. It's a different perspective to explain the trend of unbelief. So in, in our time in, in, in 2011, how would you say p- people are the hard soil? Well, this would be the person who is opposed to Jesus, who has the hard heart. There doesn't seem to be any venue for the gospel seed to, to come in and, and take root and to grow into fruitfulness. These are people that you would know in your life, that you would share the gospel with maybe many times. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your colleagues. And they have hard hearts. You know who they are. This past week, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with three different men unrelated to one another, different stages of their life, and all three men were unbelievers. But I had hope for two of them, but one of them I wasn't so sure. 
he was a very intellectual man, very gracious man, very kind man. He is a um, graduate, uh, graduated from Loyola with a PhD in philosophy. He's currently uh, a chemistry professor. And no matter what I said about the gospel, in a very gracious way, it was explained away. So talking about Jesus being divine. No, Jesus was not divine, just a man. Talking about how Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Well, you know, that's a story that mimics other stories. It, it was like no matter what I, I said, no matter what angle I tried to take on this guy and bring in the gospel, it was explained away as in, that's great, it's good for you, but that is not true in any way, shape, or form. And I thought to myself, this is the hard path. I'm throwing out gospel seed constantly to this guy, and Satan is coming in, taking it away. Throwing out gospel seed. Satan is coming in, taking it away. And, and when you know someone like that, you say, well, are they, are they ever going to be saved? Do we just give up hope? I mean, I, I think we can continue to pray for people like that and plead uh, with God to have mercy upon them and, and plead with them and the gospel. But we know people who are this hard path. Like nothing we say, gospel seed keeps getting taken away. Soil number one. Look at soil number two. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Oh boy, here's some shallow ground here. It's the person who hears the gospel. They're pumped up at first. They're excited. They're kind of like the crowds, right? They're like the crowds following Jesus. They're all excited about the miracles, excited about the feedings, excited about the healings and the raising from the dead, excited that maybe Jesus is the one who's going to overthrow the Romans. And then the crowds are like observing. It appears that the religious leaders want to kill him. It appears that Rome will soon get on, in on the action and want him dead also. And as the crowds follow Jesus, Jesus keeps talking about going to the cross and whoever wants to follow him better take up their cross and follow him as well to the cross. And so the crowds are like, I'm not so sure. We were excited. We were pumped at first. I don't think so. That involves too much suffering. I'm out of here. And then you will notice, if you follow Jesus through the Gospels, it seems that most abandon him. Most do not follow. Most do not stick it out for the long haul. A lot of initial excitement, a lot of large crowds, but there's a lot of thinning out quickly. I think about people today, maybe some of you, made a profession of faith or whatever you want to call it. You uh, walked an aisle or you uh, accepted Jesus into your heart at six maybe at 16, maybe at 52. There was an initial excitement in your life. You're, you're pretty pumped that you get to follow Jesus. But then you didn't really count the costs. You didn't know that the suffering was associated with following Jesus. You didn't know that things would actually go wrong because you were associated with Christ. And over time, that initial excitement has turned into a falling away. I mean, I know you're still here, you're still in church, but you, you kind of got this hardness about you that even though you're here, maybe you're doing it for your kids, maybe you're doing it for your spouse, maybe you're doing it for your family, but on a whole, you're not really with Christ. You, you, you've, you've got really distracted, and your joy is no longer there. 
but it is gone because the circumstances have gotten too hard. When things get hard, you are gone. And it makes me want to say a word about joy because none of us want to have a joy that is temporary. None of us want to have a joy that's just for a little bit and then passes away. So I want to say something about joy. If you're a believer, you're not going to believe this, but if you're, if you're a believer, God enjoys you. Does that sound kind of weird? <laughs> he enjoys you. The Bible talks about him delighting in his children. He delights in you. And he wants you to delight in him as well. And so what he did, he put his spirit in you so that your spirit is filled with the Holy Spirit and you will delight and have joy in him through Jesus. And it's... it's it's, it, I just want to clearly say, your greatest joy and satisfaction should be in God alone. Not in the things of God, not in the circumstances. Because what can happen, if we start basing our joy upon our circumstances, those will shift. So we're not talking about joy of feeling good feelings during worship time, though that is great. We're talking about a very deep-rooted joy. In fact, we're talking about a joy that roots martyrdom. When I talk to you about joy, I'm not just talking about joy just for good feelings. I'm talking about a joy that is ready to die for Jesus. What kind of joy is that? What kind of joy where we say, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. You are my greatest prize. I am so consumed with you. And I realize that the Father enjoys me, that I will do anything, obey you anywhere, and I am willing to die for you. That is not a circumstantial joy. That is not a joy that is quickly withers and is away. That is a joy that roots martyrdom. Deep-rooted joy. Soil one, soil two, now soil three. Verse 22. So far, the, the first two soils, non-believers. Non-believers. Maybe you grew up in a church where they explained each soil as some type of quasi-believer. No, non-believers. First two soils, non-believers. Third soil, once again, non-believer. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this is a person who's caught up, maybe, maybe you, you're caught up in the anxieties of life or the deceitfulness of riches. So this person can have a good doctrine, go to church, profess to be a believer, but if you notice at the very end of the verse, there is no fruit. There is no fruit. There's no fruit of righteous living and holiness. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no fruit of loving others. There's no fruit of obedience. This is the soil of people in their heart. They're preoccupied with cashing in or they are preoccupied with the cares of the world. They're basically too busy to follow Jesus. And so the gospel seed is lingering in their lives, but it's unfruitful. It's choked out. The competition from the world wins out. And I've been a pastor for 14 years and I have seen these people under my pastoral care over the years. And when I see them, whether they come in for counseling or I see them at church or I see them in small group or I see them wherever, and I interact with them, I almost want to say to them, you are here, but you're not really here. I mean, you're here 
in the sense you go to the church, you claim to be a Christian, but you're not really here for that reason. I mean, I'm I'm not kidding. I, I will talk to some people, and for them, their goal is like the anxieties of the world. Let's say they want to make a relationship work. I mean, I've met with men and women who use Jesus as a means to make their relationship work. Their goal is not Jesus. Their goal is to make the relationship work, whether it's marriage, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, dating relationship. And I meet with them. I, can, I've, I have a picture of one guy in the mind. I keep talking about Jesus, about following Christ, and the subject always shifts back to the relationship. It's like he's here, but he is not here. No desire for Jesus. It's like fix this relationship. And on another subject, talk about those who are deceived by wealth. I will also meet with people. And they're here, but they're not here. They're trying to get through this degree program. They're trying to get this job. I could really see it when I was out in Los Angeles. I would meet with people in the industry, people in my church from the industry, trying to make it in the entertainment industry, whether they're trying to do the behind-scenes production work or they're trying to be actors and actresses. And they were there. They were not there for Jesus. They're like, you know what? Maybe if I can come in here and say some prayers and feel kind of good about myself, then maybe Jesus will give me that big breakthrough. And I'm like, no, let's talk about following Jesus. And like, no, no, let's talk about my breakthrough. Let's talk about me when I finally make it. It's competition. It's competition. And you know what? They prove to be unfruitful. And I don't know where you're at, but I, I want to I say this. If there's this competition where your life is about the relationship or your life is about making it, and you're here, but you're not really here, just you may be unfruitful. The competition is choking it, choking it. There is no growth. There is no fruitfulness. So the first three soils, unbelievers. But the last one describes believers. Look at verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. I, I, think, I think this is most of you in here. I really do. I believe that most of you, the gospel seed has taken root. You have repented of your sins. You believe in Christ. And there is, there is, there's fruit of a holy life. There's, there's fruit of joy in Jesus. There's fruit of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, just booming out of your life. There is fruit. There is obedience to his commands. And so if you are a believer, you will bear fruit. But... There seems to be different, I don't know how I would explain that, different levels of fruitfulness. Hmm, is that a good way to explain it? Different levels? I don't know. Hundredfold, 60, 30. What's it talking about? Well, it it seems like part of what it's talking about is the idea of capacity. I mean, you've got to admit, some of you have a greater capacity to do certain things than others. 
So maybe some of you are the hundredfold type fruit bearer. I mean, you're, gonna, you're just going to be bearing fruit all the time. There's something significant about your capacity. So for those of you who are the hundredfold type, you don't need to be looking down and judging the thirtyfold people. And for those of you who are the thirtyfold capacity, don't need to be um, feeling guilty because you're not the sixtyfold or the hundredfold. I know, I know we do that, right? We judge each other and we think, why don't I have those gifts? Or why don't I do what they're doing? Or why are they doing this? And we judge each other. But look, each of you have different callings. You have different giftings. You have different capacities. There is a different... Uh, kind of output of fruit-bearing of obedience in your life. But I don't want you to focus on your capacity. I want you to think about this. Yes, the capacity is true. We know that. But my question is, for the way God created you and crafted you and saved you and made you, are you firing at full capacity, whatever that is in your life? Are you firing at full capacity? Are you bearing, as much as you can in this fallen world of sin, are you bearing as much fruit as God desires you to bear? And I think part of that fruit bearing, or lack of, comes down to the idea of surrender. Have you invited God into every venue of your life for full examination and say, God, I want to be this maximum fruit-bearing person. And so I'll invite you into all these areas because I want to fire by your grace, by your spirit, at full capacity fruit-bearing. So we can talk about capacity all day. But I want to talk about are you being at your height of capacity and fruit-bearing? And so we'll start, or we'll actually end where we started. This idea of fruitfulness brings me back to the concept of trending. Did you catch that? If you're a believer in Jesus, you should keep growing and continually trending upward. Doesn't mean you won't have struggles, does not mean you will not suffer, but you should have movement that goes this direction. A lot of us think it's supposed to be like, no, it's very slow. It's a progressive sanctification where we are trending upwards. But we know that the more surrendered life is the more fruitful life. The more surrendered life is the more fruitful life. So I think some of you are just, you're not firing at full capacity of your fruitfulness because there are some areas of your life you just flat out have not surrendered. And in some sense, you're wasting those portions of your life. There's areas you're not obeying or you're not giving attention to. You're not firing at full capacity of fruitfulness. And so rather than have you go home and examine your life, I want you to do that now. I want you to take some time of self-examination. And as you examine different areas of your life, I want you to allow the gospel of Jesus to invade each area of your life by grace and show you in certain areas of your life where you can be at maximum fruitfulness for whatever he's called you to do. So this is not going to be something we do at home. We're going to do this now because I guarantee if I tell you to do something this afternoon, you won't do it. It's too nice out. You'll go to sleep or you'll go do something else. So this is what we're going to do. Look at the back of your bulletin. If you've got a bulletin, look at it. And I want to put this trending now top five up 
It's, it's four on the back of your bulletin. Humor me and make it five. There are pencils in front of you. So this is what we're going to do. I want you to add the top, I want you to write down the top five things that, that are just your life right now. What, what, what's consuming your time? What's consuming your thoughts? And, and don't get all spiritual on me. Don't write down Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Like, what's going on in your life? Write down the things that are trending, the things that you're seeking after. What do you dream about? What consumes a significant amount of your time? What do you care about? Uh, maybe it's a particular sin that is trending in your life. You know what? If you're fearful that someone's going to look over your shoulder and write out, see all your sins you're writing out, write in code. Like, just put letters there. Right? Write in code. You know what it is. God knows what it is. Maybe you're consumed with a relationship or a purchase. Um, whatever is a reoccurring theme in your life or dreams, or just, I just want you to write these things down, that they can be sinful, they can be righteous, they can be neutral. Just take some time and stop and fill out what's going on in your life, your mind, your heart. It can be your family, your kids, your spouse. Just write down five. I'll give you a second. These are real-life things. Maybe you're having a baby. Put that down. Maybe you just had one. Maybe you want to have a baby. Write down real-life stuff that is going on. Maybe you're moving. Maybe you just moved here. If you're going on vacation, what's going on? Okay. Now, if you got three, that's good enough. If you got two, you know you got five. Here's what I want to tell you. So many times when we come to church, we get so overly spiritual. We act like that somehow the things we really deal with in life, God doesn't care about. We've got to be spiritual. Got to do all the spiritual stuff. But these things that are consuming your life right now, God wants you to bear fruit in the midst of all of that. But the capacity can be hindered based upon surrendering issues. And so what I want to do, you take your list. Here at the end, I'm going to lead you through prayers, uh, going through each item where we can surrender. Because we want to bear fruit by God's grace, by His Spirit, impacted by the gospel in real life stuff, in real life unfulfilled dreams, squashed dreams, fulfilled dreams. Let's just get into the nitty-gritty and surrender in the details. So let's go to a time of prayer. Lord, we just ask that you would take this list and at this moment what we see on paper, it's interesting, some of us just see on paper for the first time what actually fills our minds and our hearts. 
So maybe some of the things on the list we're ashamed of. Maybe some of the things we're disappointed by. But whatever's going on, Lord, I just ask that you would take these things in our lives that are the most important things to us, that are consuming the most of our thoughts, and we ask you to invade every area. And we just ask that you would make us fruitful in any area, in every area you need to make us fruitful in. So, Lord, for those who need a deeper joy, maybe in their work, I just ask they would surrender that to you. Those who just hate their jobs would surrender that to you. Those, those moms who stay at home that need a deeper joy and just a vision with their kids, may you give them that. Those who need to repent of some of the things on this list, may you grant them repentance. Those who need forgiveness to give or to receive forgiveness in a hard relationship, may you give it. For those of us who are discontent in some of the things in our lives, we're just not content in life. May you, we surrender to that, Lord. We ask for contentment. Lord, for where we need wisdom, we have to make big decisions. May you give wisdom. We surrender that to you. We're not going to fear. For those of us who are moving, we just surrender that to you. Lord. We're not going to fear what's next. Take away the fear, Lord. We surrender it to you. Those who are struggling financially, Lord, we just give that to you. We surrender it to you. Those who need to repent of their laziness in some of these areas, lack of discipline, Lord, we repent. Where we need to be more tender and compassionate, Lord, we just ask that you would fill us. Lord, what we're basically saying to you is that we so love you that you enjoy us, that you sent your son Jesus to live and die and rise for us so we can know you. And so we surrender our lives to you and ask that you would make us as fruitful as we can be on this earth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.